Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So a brilliant interview took place between Bloomberg News and the Secretary, the Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, on a train in Philadelphia. And the Secretary of the Treasury taking the opportunity to say there are a lot of ways that the economy could grow. You could have wage inflation and not necessarily have inflation concerns in general. It's a message that seems to be coming out of this administration that wages can go up, but you may not end up with broad-based price pressures. I want to turn to someone who can weigh in. It's Carl Weinberg. He is the founder of High Frequency Economics, and he joins us here in New York City. So, Carl, let's put the economics to the test. Can we have the wage growth without a big boost to the overall headline inflation number? Well, we, we can. It's a question of whether it's likely. The, the whole driving theme of this administration is that its policies are going to increase productivity. So if productivity goes up as fast or faster than wages do, then unit labor costs, which is what affects prices, they'll go down, and, and then you can get what the secretary suggests. So the, the primary thesis of the Trump administration is that test here, will current policies increase productivity? So the administration say this is a big supply-side stimulus, so it should end up with um, less inflation than you might expect if it was just a demand-side stimulus. But a lot of people come on this program and they say, you know what, Carl, we're bumping up against supply constraints, capacity constraints, and that's got to mean that if this economy grows any further, inflation's bound to come. What do you say back to that, Carl? Well, I don't say anything back to it. I agree with it entirely. Yeah. You know, uh, at high-frequency economics, we've been telling our, our subscribers for a long time now that the administration's policies, at least in the short run, are going to be uh, inflationary, that they're going to take an economy that's already at full employment and push it full Pull through full employment, and we don't really see the merits of doing that at uh, at this time. Jeff Goodline of uh, Double Line went in on Twitter of all places, and he said the following um, to Secretary Mnuchin: "Policies will raise wages without inflation. Yeah, sure. And we're going to expand the Buffalo Art Museum without making it bigger." And then he followed up by saying, "If by miracles wages go up without inflation, it's not good for profits. Isn't that the bottom line here? If you get the wage growth, but you don't get the overall price pressure." and uh, prices don't go up, then what happens to profits of some of these big companies? You assume that margins go down, wouldn't you, Carl? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with that because the only way that you can get that increase in wages and not get prices to go up is if productivity goes up. Right. So if productivity goes up, you know, then workers will get you know two-thirds or whatever the labor share yeah. of income is in the economy out of it, but uh, the rest will go back to profits. No, that would be a very, very good outcome. The question on the table, and I don't have an answer for it, is what is productivity going to do next, well, separate from the question of whether Trump policies are going to help it go higher faster. This is critical. The, the The media wants to always focus on something equivalent to total factor, total factor productivity, which is technology and what we're doing and what we're doing better. Nobody talks about labor deepening because that hasn't been part of the story for half a century, if not more. But then there's this thing, capital deepening. How can you have capital deepening if you have share buybacks and dividend growth? Well, of course, you know, you're hitting on, on the questions of the day. You know, the, the question of the day isn't, you know, would more productivity, would more output per worker make us better off? Well, of course it would. That's how we get 
better off. The question on the table, which is a political as well as an economic question, is where the current policies are going to necessarily take us to higher productivity growth. And the, the knock-on question is, is whether we're going to get higher productivity growth at all with okay, or without current policies. John, this is the arch question that's been around since time began. Yeah. Does higher productivity growth create jobs or does it put people out of business? Everything we know about economics tells us that the course to prosperity is paved by higher productivity growth. There, that's that's a good one, isn't it? You can keep so what is what is the we, catalyst for productivity growth, and, and do you see it now? You know, I was talking to Tom about this off camera on the television segment just before, and I went through all my notes from graduate school. We don't have a theory, an economic theory of productivity. We can observe episodes of productivity surging. We can see at times when productivity drove the economy forward. Look at the '60s and the '70s. Yeah. Look at the race for space. All right, all that Teflon and Velcro and all that stuff and digital technology that all made us better off. We need a project like that. And there are good candidates out there. The environment is a good project like that. Infrastructure is a good project like that. There are lots of things we can do that can increase overall productivity, but we have to do them. And it's not clear. Now we'll get into the politics of it and now I'll get in trouble and your Twitter will, will go off the hook right now. But, but it's not clear whether or not either way that current administration policies that cutting taxes is going to get us that result. Why not? It's just not clear. Like I said, we have no theory of productivity growth. All right, What we do see in the short run is that whatever current administration tax policies do for productivity in the longer run, in the shorter run, they're creating a lot of demand. And our chief economist at High Frequency Economics, Jim O'Sullivan, is writing about this. In yeah. the near term, people are getting more money in their pockets and they're spending it long before companies can get around to investing it in projects that will increase productivity. So, so the thoughts of the current administration, though, just to stack up the order of things for them, it seems to me that they think by cutting taxes, you boost capital expenditure and by boosting CapEx, you boost productivity. Um, I, I know you're saying we don't have a theory of productivity, but does that not just stack up for you? cut taxes, CapEx increases, more CapEx, more productivity? That's the theory, and now we have to wait and see if it plays out. But until that theory plays out, everyone agrees that if it does play out, it's going to take time. In the meantime, in the very short run, this week people are getting fatter paychecks than they did a month ago or two months ago, and they're going to start to spend it. So demand is going to increase faster than supply, even if the supply side theory works, and that creates an inflation challenge for the Fed. I'm looking at the GDP forecast. I was talking to Jonathan Golub at Credit Suisse, and he said, go on ECFC on the Bloomberg terminal. So I did it, and I looked at the forecast for 18, 19, and 20. And what you see is a real deceleration in growth here in the United States of America. This is the survey of economists here at Bloomberg that we survey from 2.7% this year to 2.4% next year to 1.9% in 2020. Do you see growth in the United States of America rolling, out, rolling over the way our survey captures that story? I think Jim O'Sullivan has growth uh, in the U.S. Uh, a little bit more flat than what your survey has. And um, uh, and I think that that would probably characterize it uh, a little bit uh, pretty well. You know, we don't see it rolling down to 1.9, but we do think that something has to give. And if Jim's right in his forecast, then we'll see more growth than you're showing in the Bloomberg survey, but we'll probably see a little bit more inflation than either your survey or the Fed wants to see. There we go. Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics founder, joining us in New York City. He's going to stay with us as well, Tom. And quite into the week, I must say. I must say, a very, very quiet end well, to the week after a, a pretty vicious start I, with all that bond issuance coming through. A quiet end of the week, but with the political news flow 
and with some of the economic themes that we can address with Dr. Weinberg and Michael Darda uh, as well coming up, I think there's a lot of themes, John, into the spring that are really unanswered right now. And, and I, I think, frankly, looking into March, it makes for a fascinating March 21st Fed meeting. Well, looking to the Fed minutes, I have to say that confusion about inflation yes, confusion. still remains. And I think there is still just the confusion, and most people would admit to it, what this package yeah. that has come out from Washington, D.C., what the tax cuts ultimately mean for overall yeah. growth and, and how much longevity that trajectory for yeah. higher growth in the United States how much, uh, how much longer it will actually last. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much with High Frequency Economic. Friday's a time to get ready for weekend reading, get ready for the week, the end of the month and into March. And right now, our most important interview of the day on the American economy. John Farrell, please. Michael Darda, who, John, what I love about him, yeah. he's always leading with nominal GDP. G- Michael Darda loves the American animal spirit. MKM Partners, Chief Economist and Chief Market Strategist, joining us in New York. Michael, big question. What do you do when all investors seemingly flock to the one side of the boat. And I'm talking about treasury markets and how everyone seemingly at the moment seems to be pretty more bearish compared to where they were a year ago. Absolutely. So <clears throat> thank you guys for having me on. I think you take the other side of the bed um, as long as there's a fundamental reason to do so. Is there? I believe there is. So we've seen a pretty significant push higher in the 10-year treasury yield, almost at 3%. Now we're pulling back over the last couple of trading sessions. But first question is, why is that happening? The reason it's happening is because there's been a cyclical acceleration in productivity, or sorry, nominal GDP growth. Tom led with (laughs) nominal. Uh, We can can talk about productivity in a bit. But nominal growth is now back over 4% year over year. That's the best showing in year-to-year nominal GDP growth in four years time. And guess where the yields were four years ago? Just under 3%, right where we are today. So the average gap between the 10-year treasury yield and nominal GDP through this business cycle has been about 140 basis points. So with nominal growth up at 4.4, you're basically right there at three. The question is, where do we go from here? Is this going to be sustained and built upon, or are we going to see slower growth in 2019 and in 2020. And I think the lagged impact of Fed tightening and the weak underlying fundamentals for productivity and labor force growth probably will pull nominal growth back below 4%, in which case you'd want to take a more bullish view on the treasury market from here. Is the tactical positioning a lot more important in the short term though, Michael? And what I mean is those record shorts that are in the treasury market. And for a lot of people wondering just why we seem to be capped here below 3%, there are some massive short positions that have built up that you imagine it's going to make it difficult to break yields out any further for the time being, Michael. At least that's an argument out there. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, we don't want to get uh, trapped too much in the in the short-term volatility, um, but we could, you know, use use that as an opportunity to build positions. So in this case, if we look at certain sectors that have um, sold off pretty hard in the, in the bond yield run-up, utilities would be one defensive sector uh, under strain, and REITs, uh, big correction in the REITs, over 15% from the you know, the uh, the recent highs. So if we truly are kind of topping out here on the 10-year yield around, you know, or just under 3% in a year from now, we're lower in yield. I would take a look at some of these groups that, you know, that are defensive, that have fallen out of favor, use the shorter term volatility to build the positions um, for the long haul. 
Have you changed within nominal GDP its correlation and linkage over to revenues of corporate America? I've made anybody that listens to me knows I've made a big deal about the shift I perceive at Honeywell uh, mm-hmm. to a better revenue line, and we're seeing it from some other companies as well. Are yeah. we going to see? Revenues ramp up as a general statement. Well, we are seeing it in a modest way. So, you know, we we suffered through a four or five quarter profit recession in 2015 and 16. That was part and parcel of a big nominal GDP slowdown. <clears throat> and you could see that in you know, weak top line growth as well. Uh, so there has been a, a modest pickup. But are we going to continue building momentum on the top line from here? And I think that's probably unlikely. At the end of the day, the underlying backdrop for productivity has been weak. So last year, even with nominal growth at a four-year high and real growth at a four-year high, productivity was lousy. Averaged 1% for the year. Q4 was you know, close to zero. So no sign yet of this, you know, much hoped for uh, pickup in productivity growth. You know, hopefully it happens. That's ultimately what propels the standard of well, living over time. Well, then where's the in- investment? Do we need an old Jude Wisniewski supply shock to do that? Where's the the behavioral linkage into business and investment? I don't see it. What I see is within a general critique, financial engineering. Yeah, you've got a lot of that going on, uh, no doubt about it. I, you know, I, I think if we're talking about the su- supply side, we need to look at it in a complete way, in a holistic fashion. Many people are focused on the prospects of faster productivity because corporate tax rates have come down. Um, but let's look at fiscal policy overall. We're going towards That's more restrictive anti-growth policies on trade, anti-growth policies on immigration. You know, those things stunt the supply side. We're building up deficits at a time in the business cycle when it's completely inappropriate. Uh, higher debt will tend to, you know, tend to, to you know, to, to dampen uh, productivity growth, all things equal. So, sure, the corporate tax cut could help at the margin, but there are other forces out there on the supply side that have, you know, that have been headwinds and or are getting worse. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see about this, you know, so-called productivity pickup. Yeah. I'm pretty skeptical. Michael, let's unpack some of the comments you just made. I think the idea that we should have a counter-cyclical fiscal policy is something that most of our listeners will share and that now is probably not the appropriate time to inject fiscal stimulus into the economy when it's doing well. Fine. Let's put that to one side. I want to address the anti-trade issues. I don't actually see many big anti-trade policies. Now, I put the emphasis on policies. I see a lot of rhetoric. I hear a lot of rhetoric. I don't see any policy to back it up. Uh, Are we going to see the policy to back it up? I I sure hope not. You know, there have been a lot of threats and, you know, uncertainty can act as a tax. And and that's where we are. Uh, But we haven't seen like a wholesale pullout of NAFTA or something like that, which could be quite damaging. Uh, But, you know, at the margin, you know, we are moving into a more restrictive posture on both trade and immigration. And if we're talking about the supply side, we need to incorporate those headwinds and not just, you know, dance around on top of the corporate tax cut and expect like the old normal's about to return. I think you know, yeah. we'll end up disappointed if that's the path down which we're going. So trade is one thing, regulation another. Regulation is something else we hear a lot about, the loosening of right. regulation. Um, are you seeing the loosening of real- regulation in reality and overlay that over your bearish thesis? Well, sure. I mean, theoretically, uh, if you're stripping away regulations that are growth retarding or, or inefficient, you know, that can help to lift productivity. But, you know, 
that's really the test, right? If it's just simply a matter of, well, let's deregulate the banking sector and you still have uh, too big to fail and moral hazard goes crazy. I mean, is that going to lift productivity? I don't think so. How do you link it into the stock market? You know, one of the great Michael Darda heritages is you do all this econobabble and we thank you that you do a lot of Bloomberg terminal usage in your research notes. Nobody cares. They just want to know on a Friday, do they go long the market here? Right. Okay. Let's do that. <clears throat> so if you, you know, to a lot of people, it looks like we're in a really strange situation with these really strong, you know, risk asset prices and oh, fairly come on. We went down, growth. we had a 10% correction and we've right. been bouncing around. We're bouncing around now, but it's been a very <clears throat> strong cycle for the stock market, yes. not so much in terms of nominal GDP. But if you look historically at uh, price-to-earnings ratios for stocks, is, is assuming you're not in a recession period, you know they tend to correlate inversely with inflation and nominal growth. And, you know, so obviously discount rates tend to be lower in a lower inflation environment as long as you're not in a recession. Slow but steady growth, low inflation, low discount rates gives you what everybody looks at as bubbles, right? Um, so that's the environment. It, we're in. Um, that doesn't mean that stocks are going to continue compounding at double-digit rates. I think we shouldn't expect that. Probably, you know, more of a single-digit environment. But you close can't to nominal make, you growth can't make be reasonable. A, you can't make a case. Talk about the triple leverage on cash fund. You can't make a case to dash to cash. Well, you could make a case. You could make a case. So, so cash paid nothing. Uh, not long ago. Now the Fed has rates almost up at one and a half on the short end. So cash is uh, an alternative and short rates are going to continue to move higher as the yield curve compresses and it's likely to keep compressing. You know, at some point, um, you know, the Fed probably will tighten enough to end the business cycle. We're certainly not there yet. We don't <clears throat> expect to be there this year. Yeah. But in that environment, yeah, cash is an alternative. Very quickly here, you, your basic theme is we can't get back to 5% plus nominal GDP. We're not going to get back there without two things, either a sustained pickup in productivity growth or a different inflation target from the Fed than the one they have. Okay. If you look at the Fed's forecast, it's 1.8 in terms of sustained real growth, 2% inflation target, add the two and you're just below 4% nominal. If yeah. we're thinking in multi-year increments, you can go with that. Very good. Michael Darter, thank you so much. It's a stunning statement for folks on a reduced animal spirit, a reduced vision of what we knew 20 years ago. Michael Darda, <laughs> oh, excuse me, I'm gasping. Thank you. It is a wonderful time to catch up on the policy of Washington with Libby Cantrell. She is with PIMCO. Uh, and thrilled that she's with us. And, and really, a, I guess I'm going to call it a heartbreaking week, Libby. I, I really would like to talk about the stuff that's off the radar, but on the radar is the heartbreak of Florida and guns. I, I want to just center on one politician as I have through the week, Rob Portman, who's been a good friend of Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance, the senator from Ohio. I believe he's a big receiver of funds from NRA, do those kind of more centrist Republicans, do they shift off the Florida tragedy? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it, it was, it, it's, it is just, it's just tragic what happened, what happened last week. You know, it does feel in Washington that this time might be different, right? Although, you know, with the caveat that I think every time these, you know, horrible mass shootings happen, um, 
you know, folks, folks say that. But I think that the reason why this might be different is, of course, just the very articulate, uh, mobilized response that we've heard um, from from the students um, of the, of the impacted high school. I mean, we've you know you just have heard their own accounts of this, and and it just it you know it feels like they're actually penetrating. Um, and there are some you know low hanging fruit, so to speak, uh, in terms of gun control, uh, tightening background checks, um, yeah. you know, these bump stock issues. There are things that I think moderate Republicans can get behind while, um, you know, not totally alienating, you know, their, you know, their base or their, or their donor base. I look at where we are, and I guess to get back to somewhat normal policy, the lead is the president's ratings are better. Can you ascribe his poll ratings better to tax reform? Is America liking what they saw six, eight weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, of course, when this was when this was passed back in December, this was one of the you know least popular tax bills, including tax hikes um, that had gone through. I mean, the, the the majority of the population viewed this very unfavorably. That has changed. I mean, of course, you've seen companies announcing these one-time bonuses. Um, you've seen you know better corporate earnings. The stock market continues to go up. Um, so I think the sentiment around taxes certainly changed. Um, you're now seeing, you know, 50 percent approval ratings. And I think that, you know, part of that it has, you know, has to do with the, the, the president's, um, you know, pre- president's approval rating. However, and as you know, Tom, I mean, his, his approval ratings are historically low, right? I mean, they, right. he finished out this year with the lowest approval rating, you know, of any, of any president. So he still has a, a way to go, but um, certainly the directionally it's, it's been more positive recently. We're going to get an analysis of fiscal policy. John and I were talking about that earlier in our five things uh, to know. We're beginning to see a little bit of analysis. Give us a head start on that, uh, Libby Cantrell. When the fiscal experts weigh in, what will you be looking for? What What's the mystery you'll be searching for in the next two, three, four years of our trillion-dollar budgets? Well, yeah, I mean, this is obviously, you know, it's extraordinary to see such fiscal stimulus this late in the economic cycle, unlike everybody has been, has been discussing. I mean, not only did we see, of course, the big tax bill that was passed and signed into law in December, but, you know, what you just saw was this very significant two-year spending deal um, that's going to add, you know, 20 to 30 basis points of, to, to, to real, real GDP growth um, over, the, over the next two years. So a lot of fiscal stimulus, a lot of fiscal impulse you know, coming out of Washington. I think the, the big question, of course, is this just a sugar high? Is this just going to add you know, short-term to nominal growth? Or does this really um, kind of contribute to, yeah. to productivity <clears throat> and, and, and what have you and lead to more sustainable real growth? And I think that's the big that's a big question right. mark. And, and, John, to the question, let me answer if, on my own part, John Farrell, with an yeah. American analysis. I go to the plugins. What's the GDP plugin that we just heard from Michael Darda? How do you plug that into this analysis? I want to understand what Libby's talking to the PMs at PIMCO about right now because we caught up with Mark Kiesel yesterday, uh, Libby, of course, someone you know well. He heads credit, global credit over at PIMCO. And you're taping him for the real year. We, we're not. This, we're not. This, 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 this has already happened. <clears throat> um, and he's basically saying we're not underweight 
treasuries anymore. We've been underweight for a while and we've shifted. So it makes me wonder, the, the policy that we hear about and the worries that a lot of people have on the street at the moment, Libby, is a deficit getting out of tro- control and a government that struggles to finance itself. I sent from you guys that that's not a worry for you. Yeah, you know, we, um, I think that's exactly right, right? I think we, um, you know, we, we've, our view is that unless you really see a sustained pickup in inflation, and, you know, what we're looking at for inflation is, is in around, you know, 2, 2.1%, nothing um, so significant that we think is going to lead, um, you know, the Fed to act in, in more of a, a significant way than what is already priced into the market. Um, and so, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think at this point, we're actually, some of our PMs are actually adding U.S. duration um, because they're, they're thinking that this is probably, you know, pretty fair value in terms of where the, say, the 10-year is. Libby, what is your analysis right now for the trajectory of the deficit in the United States? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we obviously saw the deficit finish out in 2017 around you know, $670 billion. It looks like for 2018, it's going to be around a trillion. And then... 2019, uh, 2020, you know, 1.2, 1.3 trillion uh, if we're on this trajectory. So, you know, quite significant. However, you know, we saw, you know, President Obama run, you know, very similar deficits um, and yields were, you know, very low. So it's a, a clearly a different yeah. context right now. But, um, you know, it's, it, the, the sort of the correlation is not necessarily one to one for sure. Yeah, but I really, uh, uh, Libby, and I, you know, I, I've seen this from a lot of analysis. The comparison of 2012 to now in 2020, we were coming out of a financial crisis there, and that debt reality looked normal. It was hugely stochastic. We went to a much wider debt, and then we, you know, essentially came back to a better world. Do you see a comeback to a better world in 2021 or 2022? Yeah, I mean, um, well, look, I think we're, we're just focused on 2018, 2019. But yeah, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's an excellent point. Obviously, the context, again, is, is quite different from, from those times where we're running very large, very large deficits. And, and you know, I think, we're, you know, our view is that you're st- still, you know, we still sort of ascribe to this new normal, right, that um, you were going to see, you know, positive, but still pretty muddling growth for the U.S. Um, over the, at least the cyclical time frame. Uh, and that you're not going to necessarily see this, you know, this breakout, you know, breakout growth. And I, as a result, we think that, um, you know, partly the yields are going to be range bound because of that, right? That we're not going to necessarily see some big breakout in, uh, yeah. in, in real growth over the next so few years. So to be clear here, Libby, your base case at the moment is the deficit gets bigger year after year for the next three years, but GDP growth doesn't accelerate with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, in, yes, in some, I think that's, 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 a, that's a right way to characterize it for sure. Libby Cantrell, it's great to have you with us. She's saying PIMCO Executive VP and Head of Public Policy joining us. Uh- a joy on this Friday to speak to James Manika of the McKinsey Global Institute. Uh, we've been talking about their new report on productivity. But over the last years, I have seen only one or two reports as profound as Mr. Manika's report of December on jobs worldwide and particularly on jobs in America. James, congratulations on your uh, 150-some pages, Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained. 
Germany, page 94. Why is Germany different? What do the Germans do that the United States of America needs to do? Well, they do several things very well. They have vocational training that actually works. Uh, so people are better prepared for work. Uh, they also uh, have set up a system that allows, that, incur- that creates incentives for the private sector to invest in human capital. One of the things that's quite striking, Tom, is that if you look at as important as we say training and education and, and on-the-job training and learning is important, we have very little by way of incentives to encourage the private sector to invest in that. We, we've set up all kinds of incentives for investments into capital, into R&D. We have R&D tax credits, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to human capital, yeah. not very much. Brad so, DeLong, well, Brad DeLong and Danny Roderick looking at retail manufacturing, clothing manufacturing in America said it was all lip service. We didn't come up with the incentives for the people that got hammered 20 years ago in clothing, this clothing South. How do we change our culture to help people? Well, one way to change our culture to help people is to actually invest in them. Uh, One way, so one of the things, there's two things that we don't do as well as the United States. One is the amount that we spend either in the public sector or the private sector in on-the-job training is actually the lowest among the OECD countries. Yes. And it's been declining. Similarly, the amount we spend in helping people who've been dislocated, look what happened to globalization, is also among the lowest in the OECD countries. So we have to invest in people. Okay, so, but that, th- this is, folks, let's be direct. This is the Lockean individualistic tone of the early 19th century. I guess we've moved on from Thomas Jefferson, and maybe we can wander out to Andrew Jackson with a portrait hanging over Mr. Trump's desk in the Oval Office. How do we get to a more modern ethos from where we're stuck in the 19th century on helping labor be productive labor? I think a big part of that is realizing just how much work has changed. One of the things that we haven't paid attention to, Tom, uh, which is an important part of changing that culture, is recognizing that, well, though at the time about 100 years ago, even as recently as 30 years ago, when in fact the share of the national income that went to wages uh, was actually high, it's been declining. So we need to recognize that that's changed. So a lot of it is that we haven't quite appreciated just how much the economy and the labor markets have actually changed and how work looks different, how, and so recognizing that change is a big part of changing that culture. I've been quite struck in conversations I've had with policymakers, but also with business leaders. We haven't quite appreciated those structural changes that have occurred. So I would say that's a a big part of the first step. I mean, uh, James, when you go to Davos, I know you're flying in on the McKinsey helicopter, mere mortals like me. (laughs) I walk there, Tom. They're walking (laughs) No, actually, knowing James Benyiki, you're you're walking from San Moritz North uh, to Davos <laughs> over three mountain uh, ranges. I take the train sometimes, which, folks, is oh, just a wonderfully great. pleasant ride. And you see Switzerland manufacturing. We want to do that. How do we create not a little Switzerland, but a big Switzerland in American manufacturing that will actually, at the margin, create jobs? Well, there's several things that, we, that are actually in our favor. One of the things is that we should take advantage of the digital technologies that we now have. 
We should also take advantage of the fact that we now have an energy revolution. One of the reasons why people typically locate elsewhere in manufacturing, we forget it's not just labor costs, but it's also energy costs. So we should take advantage of that. And the other thing we should do is to invest in the supplier base. If you look at what's happened in manufacturing over the last 25 years, especially in America, is that the, so the small supplier base that feeds into manufacturing, we've mostly gutted that. So yeah. the amount of investment that's gone into that is not being great. So those are the, some of the things we need to do. But it, a lot of it also comes back to the skills question, Tom, which is our skill profile manufacturing has not been as great as it needs to be. Again, invest in people. Well, I want to go, I want to, go to that. I think that's important, the supplier base. Bloomberg Surveillance, we're with James Manique of McKinsey. Uh, brought to you by Eisner Amper. Congress has passed the most sweeping tax law changes. Since 1986, is your company ready? Check out the latest analysis, the latest news from Eisner Amper at eisneramper.com slash tax change. Let me spell that, E-I-S-N-E-R-A-M-P-E-R, eisneramper.com slash tax change. With James Manyika, we meet with him, we hope, twice a year, maybe even three, with a wonderful report, Productivity. And before that, we're talking about it right now. Jobs lost, jobs uh, gained. What is our supplier base to manufacturing? Describe that. Well, it's a so think about automotive. We have these uh, second tier and third tier uh, suppliers who provide brakes, they provide electronics, they provide uh, uh, you know uh, gear shafts, they provide all these little things. They provide the machinery, the metal tools. They even provide some of the engineering services that feed into automotive, for example. So, so there's a lot of kind of a, a, an ecosystem of these small suppliers who feed into manufacturing. This proportion of those has been declining over the last 20, 20 years or so. So that's a little bit of what we need to rebuild. It, and a lot of that is actually in the heartland. It's in the heartland, and I'm sorry it can be policy successful. Why can't we institute policy to create entrepreneurial suppliers coast to coast? Well, a, a bit, part of it, quite frankly, is we haven't paid attention to it. We've always thought about this as, you know, the big manufacturers, the big suppliers, exactly. the big players, the big, right, and not enough of the small base. But, however, there's some good news on this, which has been changing. And, by the way, manufacturing is actually on the upswing, by the way, in terms of output and growth for the United States. A, a big part of that is we've finally encouraged uh, foreign direct investment. Look at what's happened, for example, in South Carolina with automotive. And typically, when you have smart policy and you bring in uh, what are called greenfield foreign direct investments, where they build facilities, that typically also stimulates a local supply base. So you see this in various parts of the country, in South Carolina and places where yeah. we have, for example, aircraft manufacturing. But one of the things that I think we should come back to, Tom, in manufacturing, but even across the economy, it comes back to this jobs question, which is automation and AI and automation is one of the things that's actually has changed uh, what's happened to manufacturing in terms of employment, and is also coming to you know a sector near you. Uh, now that we have AI technologies yeah. and automation showing up even in white collar work. Well, we'll have to say that for another time. James Benyika, thank you so much. Solving the productivity puzzle just published, and jobs lost and jobs gained. And I'm not going to mince words, folks. You can go to the McKinsey Global Institute website. They have a terrific 
totally quick read executive summary, and then the wonderful detail and graphic presentation of these different important puzzles. It's a huge, huge public service by the McKinsey uh, Global Institute. I'll tweet all those out when I get a chance here. Well, thank you, uh, Tom. Uh, James Vanicki, thank you so much. Greatly uh, uh, appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.